The following conversation was recorded in front of a live audience at Major League Baseball's Play Ball Park in Los Angeles. Hey, what's up, L.A.? The show continues. And man, it's so exciting to be here. And like I said, to be here in this space, the Negro League Baseball Exhibit, what an amazing job. This has been a complete redo of this exhibit. Now, I want to tip my cap to all my friends over at Major League Baseball and the amazing designers who put this together. This is absolutely beautiful, and I can't think of a better place for us to be recording Black Diamonds. And I am absolutely delighted to introduce someone who needs no introduction because he is one of the greatest to ever toe the mound, the legendary Hall of Famer, Ferguson Jenkins. Y'all give it up for Fergie. Thank you. And, and Fergie, man, number one, I haven't seen you since they erected a life-size, maybe even larger than life-size statue of you there at Wrigley Field. Congratulations on a tremendous honor. Thank you. That, uh, you know, it was surprising that uh, I've seen the sculpture a couple of times before they erected it. It does look like me. <laughs> which a lot of times you get a sculpture and they don't look like they don't look exactly but this gentleman uh got the caption of me my face the back you know i mean just everything i mean it, it the first time i seen it erected after they had unveiled it i went damn that does look like me. <laughs> i can't even imagine what that felt even though you knew that they were going to do this statue what was that moment in time like when they actually unveiled it? Well, you're, you're sitting down and you don't really get the first caption of, of what really looks like until you stand beside it. And uh, it's nine foot tall yeah. on a pedestal. And it does look like me. And I was really surprised that the artist captured everything, the facial features, the way the hat looked, my glove, my hand, holding the ball, everything. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I've always said, and, and people who don't, don't know your career as well as possibly they should. Pitching there at Wrigley Field for as long as you did. And, and, and I know folks that it is hard to be underrated and be in the Hall of Fame. That seems almost like an oxymoron. But in my estimation, this is one of the most underrated pitchers of all time because he did yeoman's duty in a ballpark that wasn't exactly pitcher friendly and you did it so doggone well. Describe what it was like or what you tried to accomplish when you were pitching there at Wrigley. Well, there's always a win factor. It starts early in May. Uh, my roommate's Ernie Banks. Uh, Ernie's a <laughs> cheerful guy. <laughs> Never talks about anything sour with the world and he loved playing at Wrigley. He said, hey, you're going to have the, probably the most fun you'll, you're ever going to have uh, in, a, in a big league city, and it was Chicago, when I got traded there. And uh, I just found out that the comfort zone that you get pitching on a four-day rotation is something that you have to enjoy, which I did. And uh, one year I had well over 325, 228 innings pitched. I won 20 games. Uh, the winning swing... 20 game factor was something I always look forward to try to do. If I had 10 or 12 wins at the All-Star break, the second half was going to be easy. <laughs> now, you are part of that great fraternity 
these are guys that are enshrined in the National Baseball Hall of Fame. A guy who I know was close to you and obviously very close to me is about to join this, this, this fraternity. And that's our friend Buck O'Neill. What will that mean to you to now have Buck O'Neill join you, Billy Williams, Ernie Banks, Lee Smith, as a member of the National Baseball Hall of Fame? Well, I didn't uh, know Buck at the time when he joined the, the Chicago Cubs as a coach. I just read about it because I was in the minor leagues at the time. But got a chance to, to meet Buck uh, when we did legacy dinners in Kansas City and just seeing him at different dinners. Uh, I think that he himself would be ecstatic. I'm proud of the fact that we put him in a different category. When we went to vote for him uh, in uh, Orlando, Florida, uh, I think the category had changed. And, and Jane Clark, who uh, is the, the founder and her family is the founder of Cooperstown, yeah. decided that Booker Neal had to be in a different category. Not a builder, but as a player and as a coach. And that's how he got voted in the Hall of Fame. Yeah, no, we, we were all so very excited and the, the legwork that you guys did. Uh, and I know how difficult that process is, but we are absolutely thrilled. I'm looking forward to being there in Cooperstown next week for the induction. And I know how thrilled he would be, how much he admired all of you guys, uh, particularly those guys that I just named because they were all Cubbies. And, and to the day that he died, he was still a Cubby at heart, even though he was working for the Kansas City Royals yeah. at, at, at that time. And you talked about a guy who was also part of this legacy, and that being Ernie Banks, who was your roommate. Right. And, and, of course, Ernie folks had played in Kansas City for the great Kansas City Monarchs. Uh-huh. And they sent Ernie to Chicago. And do you know that Ernie initially did not want to leave the Monarchs? He didn't want to leave because Fergie, he was afraid. He was fearful of isolation. Yeah, because he's the first black cubby. Gene Baker was there as well. And Gene had also played for the Monarchs. And for those of you who are not familiar, Ernie Banks and Gene Baker formed the major's first all-black double play tandem. Right. Uh-huh. And Gene Baker was an astute baseball player. Gene Baker should have been a manager. But Ernie didn't want to leave because he was afraid of being isolated. And as you can well imagine now, he's playing in the Negro Leagues. Everybody looked like him. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, and then they're going places. They're having dinner together. They're going out to the nightclubs together. And he knew the minute that he was going to leave to go to Chicago, it wasn't going to be that way. Well, he's still a teenager. I think he was 19. He's a baby. So, yeah. So, I mean, that, that's something that plays on your mind. The same thing when I first signed. I was 18 years old to, to go play professional baseball in Miami, Florida. I'd never, hey, the little town I lived in was 20,000 people. Now you're going to play ball in Miami. <laughs> the, the lights in the city never go off. No, they don't go off. So I had to discipline myself to the fact that, hey, I got to get the proper amount of rest and eat the right foods and play the game. And uh, class D ball was lower than rookie ball, as you call it. <laughs> and I got my opportunity to be a professional athlete. But it, it takes a, a while for your brain to, to realize that the world you live in now can be successful, but it takes hard work. Yeah. And that's what Ernie did. I think his first couple of years in Chicago. No, no, I mean, and, and then that, that exuberant personality. He's your Boy. roommate now. He, he's your roommate. Could you get any sleep? 
Oh, he talked all the time. <laughs> I called him AM and FM. He was incredible. But he talked about baseball, talked about life, talked about playing in, in the best baseball city, I think at the, in the National League at the time was Chicago. Yeah. New York is, I think, a little more popular. L.A. was there too, but Chicago was where everybody came to play in Chicago. Even with the White Sox, he played in the American League, or he played in the National League with the, playing against the Cubs. Now, your father also was connected to black baseball. Right. He played in Canada, barnstormed. Uh, they won two championships. And I tell people, my, my dad played before Jackie Robinson got noticed. In the 38 and 39, they won two Ontario championships, barnstorming with all players of color. Yeah. And one Indian from Wapoo Island. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Now they could play. Yep. That was a great baseball team. Yeah. That was a great baseball team. Now, was baseball your first love, or was basketball your first love? First love was hockey. First love was hockey, as a Canadian. Played, played hockey yeah. for years, and then the scout that uh, came to my hometown and, and probably influenced me to, to play more baseball, he knew that I was a better ball player than hockey and basketball. He said, hey, and, but he, so he told me, he said right away, I know you want to be a first baseman, but he, he said, I think you belong on the mound. And we started working at that aspect at, at the age of 15, 16 years old. I started to pitch. Now, and, and I find that really interesting that this is actually the reverse of what we've typically seen happen because usually if you pitch, they try to convert you to an outfielder. But here's an instance where someone said, I think you've got something and we need to put you on the mound. Because at that time, there weren't a whole lot of black pitchers in the major no, leagues. No, no. Was there anyone in particular that you admired as you were honing your own craft as a pitcher? Well, you know, the biggest thing is my father took me to Detroit and I seen Larry Dolby play. Uh, I was with Cleveland at the time, a center fielder. Uh, the, I think at the time, Earl Wilson was, I think, with Boston. Gibson is with, with the Cardinals. You know, I, I watched a lot of games of the week when they showed the Dodgers yes. against San Francisco and Juan Marichal was one heck of a player. Yeah, oh yeah. So, you know, I got a chance to see individuals of color play. Uh, and especially athletes uh, that were on that mound and were winning pitchers. I, I never seen Don Newcomb pitch, uh, but Joe Black was a coach in Chicago, and I watched him throw a lot of times. But it was just the fact that I seen individuals do what they had to do to win, and I said, I think I can do that once I got traded to the Cubs yeah. from the Phillies. Yeah. No, and that trade over to the Cubs, that might have been one of the best things to ever happen. Well, to me it was. I, I, I had a chance to, to, to probably play for one of the best managers in the game, Leo DeRocher. He gave me that opportunity. First of all, I was in the bullpen, and then I won a job as a starter in 67, and that's the first year I won 20 games. And, yeah. uh, I just think to myself, if it hadn't been the trade and the manager, possibly I wouldn't have had the career I had. Yeah. Now, it's amazing how these things kind of fall in line or maybe fateful. In, in, in some regard, you're also part of an, another esteemed group known as the Black Aces. Right. Our late friend, the great Jim Muttcat Grant. God bless his soul. We miss him, miss him dearly. I know being here in L.A. takes on an even greater meaning because this was home for him for so long. He came up with this idea to recognize a group of major league, African-American major league pitchers and of course, this guy being Canadian as well, who had won 20 games or more in a, any given season. And at that time, when he came up with the concept, there was only 13. 
Right. Yeah, we've since welcomed others, CeCe Sabathia, David Price, Dontrell Willis, into that esteemed group. But we're talking about throughout the history of Major League Baseball, only about 15, 16 of you guys that are part of this group called the Black Aces. Right. When Mud came to you with that idea, what did you think about it? Well, first of all, he, he talked about uh, Don Newcomb of, of winning and then himself winning 20 games. Yes. He said, Ferguson, we need to research this to, to let people know that, that players of color, when they're on the hill, they can do the job as well as anybody else. And uh, he researched it. Uh, he wanted to find out exactly how many players at the time. And we started counting up the different players that had won 20 games. Gibson, Toothpick, uh, Toothpick Jones. Yes. There were so many individuals that really didn't get the notification yeah. or the notoriety. Exactly. That they were good athletes. Yeah. No, and another guy that lives here, uh, I don't know if we'll get a chance to see him this week, this, this week while doing All-Star Game, the great Al Downing. Right. The great gentleman Al Downing. Right. And, and, and people sometimes forget how great a pitcher Al Downing was because he's so much remembered for giving up home run 715 to my childhood idol, the great Henry Aaron. Right. And, and, and Al always took that in, in such great stride. He said, well, I gave up home runs to a, guy, a lot of guys that weren't nearly as good as Henry Aaron, so there was no shame giving up a home run to Henry Aaron. No. Speaking of Aaron, how did you do against Henry? I consider myself pretty lucky. <laughs> uh, I pitched against him 11 seasons. He had two home runs against me. Okay. One in Turner Park in, uh, in Atlanta uh -huh. and one in Wrigley Field. <laughs> uh, a lot of times coming in when, the, when he's with Milwaukee and in Atlanta and then back again with Milwaukee, coming into Wrigley Field, it was always a factor. I always used to tell myself, you can't let him get the ball out over the plate. And I used to pitch him hard in and hard away. And I was very fortunate enough to give up some ground balls, but some base hits. Kept him in the ballpark. But only one out of Wrigley Field. <laughs> into the bleachers. Now, as a pitcher, everybody's got one guy that you just hated to see. Who was that for you? Well, being that we're in that the same uh, division as, as Pittsburgh, I had to probably face Roberto Clemente on, on, on a, not a daily basis, but when they come into town, you're going to face against that team at least five times in the season. Stargell was a tough out, too, but Roberto was even tough, tougher sometimes. But uh, I think the, the fact that he was a bad ball hitter, he'd swing at good pitches and foul them off and then hit a bad pitch, a slider <laughs> down the way, hit to right center field. But uh, he was just a, a thorn in my side a lot of times in tight ball games. Yeah. He'd come up with a key base hit because I didn't like to pitch around people. I might give him one or two good pitches to hit, but then you've got to try to get him out, too. Yeah. You can't afford to, to, to give up base hits with men on base, but he was a guy that uh, he knew what he wanted to do. Because I faced him in winter ball in Puerto Rico, so that, he, he, we had faced each other quite a few times. Yeah, I, I, I could only imagine that those, those duels had to be pretty doggone special. Uh, I enjoyed the, the conflict, as I call it, the conflict, the <laughs> pressure or whatever. But uh, going out there and trying to do, a, do the job I was capable of doing and, and trying to win the battle. Yeah. Now, when you think about the legacy of the Negro Leagues as we're having this conversation inside this beautiful Negro Leagues exhibit, what does that mean for you? Well, it gave me an opportunity to display my talent. Uh, any player that, that puts a baseball uniform on a player of color, I mean, you've got to think of the Negro League. They started it. Yeah. 
and Jackie Robinson and Larry Doby were the two individuals that got all the notoriety in the 40s. But now you look, so many great players are playing now. Yeah. And without, I think without Kurt Flood, yeah. was a no. name that, that gave people the free agency to, to make a ton of money. And then you've got uh, Larry Doby and, and Jackie, giving them an opportunity, players of color, to, to see and display their talent. Did you ever meet Satchel? Uh, one time. One time. Uh, in uh, Kansas City. Uh, I think it was, uh, I'm not sure who the owner was at the time. It could have been Finley that gave him the rocking chair. That's right. And, That's right. Uh, I was doing a personal appearance there at the time. Is that right? And I, uh, he, he was there doing something, but that was the, the game that uh, they gave him, presented him a rocking chair. Yeah. In well, in, in, in 1965, folks, Charlie Finley, who love him or hate him, was one of the greatest promoters this game has ever seen. And, and Satchel was one of the greatest self-promoters this game has ever seen. So it was only a marriage made in heaven for Satchel and Finley to hook up. And in 1965, as a matter of fact, September 25th, 1965, Charlie Finley brings Satchel Page back to pitch for then the Kansas City A's before they moved out to Oakland. Now, if you believe, Fergie, that he was born in 1906, <laughs> which I absolutely do not. He was 70 years old. <laughs> <laughs> this would make him 59 years old at the time. The old man pitches three shutout innings, giving up only one hit against the Boston Red Sox. It's a great trivia question. 1965 Boston Red Sox, who got that lone hit off of Satchel? Hall of Famer, but it's not Ted Williams. I thought I heard it out there. Yes, it was. It was a young Carl Yastrzemski. Yes, he first got a double against the old man. Yeah. And Satchel left him at third <laughs> and shut down everybody else over three of the most remarkably pitched innings in baseball history because the man was either 59 or 69 years old, <laughs> depending on who you ask. Yeah. And you're right. Charlie Finley had a rocking chair in the bullpen for Satchel and a nurse. <laughs> and, and, and Rico Petroselli, who was a young player on that Red Sox team, he told me this. He said, we all went to the plate hacking away at that old man. They thought they were going to light this old dude up. And he says, at that time, Satchel's fastball was still 86, 87 miles per hour. He is painting the black, and they all going back to the dugout in disbelief that they couldn't hit that old man. Yeah, because he had a great hesitation pitch, too. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, I mean, he knew how to pitch. He knew how to pitch. Uh, all the barnstorming he probably did for over the years earlier and facing great hitters Yes. in the barnstorming league. So him with the Red Sox looking at younger players, he used to say, well, I'm going to tantalize him just a little bit. <laughs> well, you know, the Braves would bring Satchel back in 1968. They thought he was just a few months shy of his pension. They bring him back. They were going to help him get his pension. As it turns out, they changed the rule that year. He was actually e immediately pension eligible. But he stays with the Braves. And, and that, that spring, during <coughs> spring training now, this is 1968, mm -hmm. which would mean that the old man was 62 years old. And he gets to spring training, and he wants to pitch. And, and they did. They let him pitch two innings in spring training. He gave up nothing. He gave up nothing. Henry Aaron said he threw me one that I backed out of the batter's box and it broke across home plate for a strike. He eventually lined out to him. 
it, it, it lined out against the old man. But the two of them used to sit on the back of the bus. And, and they both, you know, of course, from Mobile, Alabama, and, and they hold in court. And, and they tell me, he said, Henry told him, he said, Satchel, you never would have gotten that fastball by me. And of course, you know, Henry believed that right. because he always said on record he never looked for a fastball because he didn't think anybody could get one by him. And, and he said, Satchel said, Hammer, had I been pitching to you, I'd have unbuttoned that top button. <laughs> a, I call that the sniffer. <laughs> and, and so I think you'll appreciate this. Satchel, who had names for his pitches, Dusty Baker, who was a rookie with the Braves in 68, told me that Satchel had a pitch famously called a throat cutter. <laughs> <laughs> and he says you only throw the throat cutter when the count is one and two. Don't want to throw it two and two no. because you didn't want to run it three and two. Don't want to obviously throw it three and two because you didn't want to take the pitch. Well, y'all, with the throat cutter, Satchel says, Fergie, he put that pitch right here, right up underneath their chin. And then they would swing like this, and they would cut their throat. And then they would look back at the umpire to see if they had actually swung, and their head would fall off. Mm. <laughs> so, <laughs> He was quite the character. If you could go back and look at any moment in your illustrious history, pitching with forever, at whatever level, is there one memory that stands out in a career that was filled with great memories? Well, you know, as a youngster, you always want to face the best hitters in the game. And I had an opportunity to face Aaron, as I said, and Willie Mays. And then the, the American League, Roger Maris, Mickey Mantle. Mm -hmm. So there were individuals. It depended on all-star competition or during the season. When Maris got traded to the, to the Cardinals, I had a chance to face him. And I really wasn't sure what kind of low ball hitter he was. But it only took one, one, <laughs> one mistake, <laughs> especially at Wrigley Field. He hit a home run off. He said, from now on, I'm not pitching you down and in. Yeah. So, yeah. But I mean, it, it, it just part of, it's a learning situation. And uh, as a pitcher, you learn uh, from your mistakes. And I made some mistakes, believe me. <laughs> I gave up my share of home runs, especially in Wrigley. But usually yours was just, you know, solo, solo, lot of solo, solo home, home runs. runs. But that mistake lives with you, believe <laughs> me. Your first All-Star appearance, what do you remember about that? Well, I struck out seven, no, six guys. Okay. In uh, two and two-thirds. You were mowing them down. Yeah, I had a lot of adrenaline going. I tell people, <laughs> you know, I was up for that. Well, yeah, 24, 25 years old. So I was throwing the ball pretty good, and Mickey Mantle was the first hitter I struck out. Then I got Fergosi and a few other guys, Killebrew, a few of them. I can't name them all. Yeah. But, I, but I had fun pitching that day. Yeah. And Ernie Banks, we were the two Cubs that were representing the, the, the ball club at the time. And Ernie, when I came in after him, he's fanning me with a towel. <laughs> I said, Rumi, I'm fine. But that was a fun World Series, a fun all-star game. Did, did, did the National League win that game? Yeah, Perez hit a home run in, the, I think, the 15th inning of Catfish Hunter. Okay, yeah. okay. And I gave up a home run to Brooks Robinson in that game. Is that right? Dick Allen gave, he hit a home run, I think, off Dean Chance in the first inning. And my home run I gave up to Brooks, I think it was in the fourth or the fifth. And then it went the rest of the game until the 15th, and Perez hit the home run. Well, you just mentioned a name. And if there is any justice in this game, the great Dick Allen 
will eventually be in the National Baseball Hall of Fame. Now, this is only my personal purview. It is an absolute travesty that he is not in the National Baseball Hall of Fame. I'm not sure anybody was more feared at that plate than Dick Allen. Well, he, he was in the, the top five every year. Power situations, home runs, RBIs, uh, along with, with Mays and Aaron and, and uh, Clemente and, and, and uh, Willie McCovey. And he was right in that group of people. But just the fact that the last couple of votings, I did one with the Veterans Committee and one with the Golden Ear. He missed my one vote one each vote. time. Each time. Each missed time. by one vote each time. So Which is unfortunate. I, I, I remain hopeful that the next cycle, maybe he will get over the hump. We were very fortunate. Obviously, you are also inducted into the Negro League Baseball Museum's Hall of Game. Right. And we were fortunate to have Dick Allen inducted before he passed away. And Fergie, I remember him sitting on the stage as they were having the conversation with him. And he said, in all sincerity, that that recognition from the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum meant more to him than anything because I think he felt like that was going to be his Hall of Fame. Well, you know, you, you play the game and you never know what the expectations are going to be. But when you get honored in a certain situation, I think that the gratification there Dick was a proud man. Very I, I room with him one year in spring training uh, and then during the season. But uh, it's just the fact that, you know, you don't play for awards. You don't. You play to win the ball game. Yeah. You play, you play. And you play for as your team, as a yeah. teammate. And uh, that's an honor that, that Dick at the time was really proud of. Yeah. And, man, we are so proud of you. Uh, I can't thank you for everything that you've given us as baseball fans, what you still can continue to give us and the support that you provide for the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. You come there, you're no stranger to us in Kansas City. I can't wait to get you back to Kansas City. I hope sometime in the very near future, y'all give it up for Hall of Famer Ferguson Jenkins. This summer, help continue the legacy of Hall of Famer Buck O'Neill by visiting thanksamillionbuck.com. With one million donations of just a single buck or more, the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum can move closer to completion of the Buck O'Neill Education and Research Center on the historic site of the Paseo YMCA, where the Negro Leagues were born in 1920. We'll teach not only the stories of Negro Leagues baseball, but also math and science through the lens of baseball history. Log on to thanksamillionbuck.com and donate today. Every buck counts. If you enjoyed these stories and want to hear more, please give us a five-star rating and leave a review. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Pandora, or wherever you get your podcasts. Black Diamonds is also available on the SXM app, free for most subscribers. Just download it today and tap podcast. For more information on the Negro Leagues and the legends of the game, please check out our website, nlbm.com and follow us on Twitter at NLBMuseumKC. Black Diamonds is part of the SiriusXM Podcast Network and is hosted by me, Bob Kendrick, president of the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. Additional voiceovers provided by Darnell Samuels. Editing and sound design by Rob Moore. Special thanks to SiriusXM's Senior Vice President of Sports Programming and Podcasting, Steve Cohen, and Vice President of Sports Programming, Chris Eno. 
SiriusXM Podcasts.